Welcome back to Talking Um Uh I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking Um Uh Jimmy Stewart. I'm Tim Vanderberg, and my guest for this episode is film historian, author, and screenwriter Joseph McBride, who serves as professor in the cinema department at San Francisco State University. McBride is the author of Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, Steven Spielberg, A Biography, and several other books, and has interviewed countless celebrities, including Jimmy Stewart, about his own career and on the subjects of Capra and John Ford. He has also written extensively on Orson Welles and was instrumental in getting the director's famously unfinished feature, The Other Side of the Wind, completed in 2018. We talked by phone recently about all of these things, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Well, where to start? Your career is, uh, you know, so notable. It's tough to even know where to begin. My first encounter with you would probably be with Rock and Roll High School. Oh yeah, I I saw it. I believe it was it would have been HBO, and I actually caught it. We were at a friend's house. We were house sitting for some family friends, and uh, I, I, we we watched it. My brother and I watched it, um, and I guess we uh, immediately uh, gravitated toward the teenage rebellion. So it was it was a fun yeah, one. Right. Are you a right. are you a Ramones fan? Well. Um... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't know much about them until I saw the film, but um, they were a perfect choice for the film. I think they, they really make that film work. You know, I mean, it, a lot of good things came together, but um, they're really crucial to the success of that film and why it endures. I think, you know, they're so great. I was there for that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the big concert they have in the middle of the film. It's like 22 minutes long, and uh, I, I spent hours and hours there I think we shot for like 18 hours or something it was a pretty wild experience and um, I, I spent a little time with them and they were very monosyllabic they were strange guys but I kind of liked that about them they were weird you yeah. know antisocial characters and uh, I think the songs are really sophisticated and terrific and, and so I'm really glad they're in the film yeah I had seen that and I saw uh, E.T. probably in the theater that same week, probably within a couple of days of each other. So that's that's the time frame that when I saw the movie, and you you know you've obviously interviewed and spent a lot of time researching Steven Spielberg. Um, yeah. Is is he one of your favorite directors and subjects? Oh yeah, he's um, probably my favorite current director. Um, <clears throat> my favorite modern director is Truffaut. But I've always liked Spielberg since way back when, and one reason I wrote the book was, um, you know, I was, at the time, there had been no, um, well, there was a there was a short biography of him that was pretty good in, in the 80s, but uh, there hadn't been a good, serious biography of him, and um, there even hadn't been a good critical study, and he was still being blasted by the critics, the reviewers, that, that improved after Schindler's List, but I've always thought he was a great director. Do you have a favorite film? Uh, of his? Of, uh, of, well, of Spielberg's, yes. Close Encounters and Schindler's List are both great. Um, Schindler's List, uh, I think other directors might have done you know, a great film of it. Uh, maybe not as good as his, but Close Encounters, nobody else in the world could have done that film. It's very special and very personal, so um, that's one I value a lot. 
For Spielberg, um, I do like both of those. I, I think I just have a personal leaning toward Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, oh, yeah. and, and just the experience of that, I thought it was, um, it hit me at the right time. I was 11 years old and yeah. <clears throat> seeing movies, uh, that was about the time that I was, I started seeing movies about every week. Um, the theater I went to had two screens and they would change out every Friday. Uh, the movies would change out. And so I went either once or twice a week for a good nine or 10 year span. And that was right at the front of that. And so, I mean, it's just a great movie, but, you know, it also just hit me at the right time, too. Well, I think we value the films that we liked when we were young, you know. Um, yeah. Not only as adolescents, but maybe as people in their 20s, you know, a lot of the films that still mean a lot to me came from that period, too. But I'm a little older than you, so I remember certain films when I was a kid, like... Um, I was just thinking of Jimmy Stewart and Spirit of St. Louis. Yes. Which is a, it was a big flop, but I, um, that was the first film I saw in a theater twice. I, I was 10 years old and I really liked it so much I went back to see it, I, you know. And I kind of liked that film. I think it's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Kind of too old for the part, but I, in a way I don't care because he fits the role so well in other, other ways, you know. I agree. You, you forget about the age just minutes into it. You get right yeah, into he seems to have the spirit of Lindbergh and uh, the ambiance, and I mean, you know, he's a great actor, and it's, um, I mean, part of the Lindbergh story was he was a young man, but Stewart sells it, you know. I tend to like any Stewart film where he yells excitedly, you know, yay! Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the scene where he sees land in Ireland is, is, is wonderful. Isn't yes, it? yeah. We can start right there with Jimmy Stewart. You have had a number of encounters with him. I guess um, first you have a, a writing credit, writing his AFI Life Achievement Award, the special for the award. How did that come about? Well, um, I was a screenwriter from, well, I started writing screenplays in the 60s. I moved to Hollywood in 73, and I was writing screenplays, and I it took me a while to sell one, and then when I started selling them, I, I quit my job in Variety. I was a film critic and, and a reporter. And uh, so for about seven years, I was a full-time screenwriter, and um, in 1980, I got the job through my agent, um, uh, proposed me for this job writing the AFI Awards, which uh, was perfect for me because I'm a film scholar. And, I, I like those shows because they're, I thought of them as film criticism for the masses or film history for the masses, you know, kind of a, a way to honor really great people um, and bring out their qualities in an entertaining way. We couldn't get too highbrow or uh, theoretical or anything, but, you know, I tried to write the speeches in a way that would illuminate their bodies of work. And so it happened that the one they were honoring was Jimmy Stewart at the time. And, uh, 
which was a lot of fun. And we, we really did something very, very amusing. We had, uh, we had three groups of young actors spoofing Jimmy Stewart. We had three, three guys who were different kinds of actors, but they're all terrific spoofing him. And we did skits as if Jimmy Stewart starred in Streetcar Named Desire, um, Fiddler on the Roof, and, um, my gosh, what was the third one? Um, but they were all really funny to see him doing those, and um, the actors did really well, and Harvey Lembeck directed those. He was a terrific uh, actor on the Bill Coe Show and in Billy Wilder's Stalag 17, etc., and he was really the best director I've ever worked with, and that was a fun thing to do. And then uh, I interviewed Stewart a few times, and uh, <clears throat> I was on the set of The Shootist, which was John Wayne's last film, and Stewart plays his doctor, as you know, he, he was gives him his diagnosis of cancer, and I was there for two days watching that scene being shot, which is really historic, and so I got to observe him at close range, and uh, um, I'm probably forgetting a couple of other things I did with Stewart. When, when he died, uh, I called MSNBC, and I said, uh, you know, I, I, I worked with Jimmy Stewart, I, I'd be happy to talk on the air about him, so they said, get over to the Hollywood studio right away, and so I was on for five hours talking about Jimmy Stewart on the day he died, which was a real honor, and uh, got to express appreciation. In, in the course of that, I quoted uh, Andrew Sarris's line that Jimmy Stewart was the most complete actor personality in the American cinema, and um, I said that he was probably the best American film actor, and the host uh, really seemed surprised, like they didn't quite realize how great he was, you know. Hmm. So, um, so I, I was fortunate to um, to know Stuart. He was he was a enigmatic man, um, very friendly, very um, willing to talk, but it was hard to coax certain things out of him. He wasn't the most articulate guy in the world, oddly enough, even though he went to Princeton. You know, he was very smart, but he was cryptic in expressing himself. For example, I tried to get comments from him on different directors and um, he made some good comments like I interviewed him for my John Ford and Frank Capra books and he made some specific comments but he tended to say the same thing about every director that um, he liked the fact that they worked visually and they didn't have a lot of dialogue mm. which is actually not totally true uh, the Ford films he has a lot of dialogue and Lubitsch's Chopper on the Corner he has a lot of dialogue etc um Yet those directors, uh, and Capra and other great directors he worked with, were very visual, and, and some of the, most of them come from silent films. But um, Hitchcock, Lubitsch, Wilder, uh, Ford, you know, they're very different kinds of directors, but it was hard for him to differentiate what he did for them. Um, and I couldn't get anything out of him about World War II, which was frustrating because, you know, it's a fascinating period in his life. And I would ask him about it, and... Um, you know, I, I respect the fact that he, he didn't talk about it much. He was, you know, men who fought in the war, and I, my father was in the war, and I knew a lot of veterans. They didn't really talk about it much. That was kind of the thing at the time. Men didn't talk about those things. And, um, but, you know, real people who were in, in combat, I found, were not inclined to brag about their exploits. And uh, it was traumatic. 
I know what you're talking about with some of the things he said about different directors, and I wonder if he just falls into default mode in interviews. I was actually going to ask you along those lines if he seemed spontaneous at all or if he, again, just uh, went back to tried-and-true statements that he had delivered. Well, not as much as some people. I mean, there were a lot of people I interviewed who told the same stories over and over again. Stuart had a few favorite stories like they all do, and we, I mean, I do that too, but um, he was pretty loose talking. You could bring up anything, and um, he, uh, you know, some, some things had more to say than uh, on other subjects, but he was he was a great storyteller, among other things, as you as you know from watching him on, say, The Tonight Show. If he, was, he used to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He would come on and tell funny stories. And he actually wrote poems, and he would read poems, and they were very funny and touching and uh, <clears throat> he, he sent me a copy of his book of poetry which I thought was awfully nice of him um, he loves to talk about his horse pie for example and I got a long story out of him about that and uh, so I think he enjoyed that more than anything else you know telling stories and and making comments about people and uh, but he, he was a somewhat difficult guy to interview not because he was uh, you know uncooperative it was just that it was hard for him to express himself verbally what he was trying to do. Hmm. Do you recall your first meeting with Mr. Stewart? Boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was on the AFI show. I can't recall for sure. Um, it, it just seemed like I, I'd known him for a long time. And uh, one time I had lunch with him at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, which he owned part of, actually. And uh, I walked in. I didn't recognize him because he wasn't wearing his toupee. He had a toupee. And he looked a lot older and, and different, but he was the same guy when you sat and talked to him, you know. Um, so I had a lot of encounters with him, and it was just, um, he was it's just a real easygoing, friendly guy, as, as everybody kind of knows, that he was, uh, he sort of was what you see, although, I mean, what, what I think is so interesting about him in some ways, he's so complex on the screen, I mean, he could play many different kinds of characters, and his range is extraordinary in terms of comedy and drama and also uh, he played very neurotic characters especially after the war uh, but I was thinking when people say he changed a lot after the war it was partly true and he he told me and other people it was partly a matter of necessity that they weren't buying the aw shucks kind of character he played before the war um, It's a Wonderful Life didn't do particularly well at the box office even though he that was his favorite film, and a lot of people love it today. But he, he made a conscious decision to be tougher in his role. So he had those great westerns with Anthony Mann, where he plays a very driven, neurotic, obsessed individual, you know, with streaks of cruelty. And he's terrific in those roles. And then he, um, the Hitchcock films, uh, starting with Rope, but later on as well, uh, he's very uh, neurotic and uh, almost psychotic and certain films like Vertigo and Rear Window, uh, terrific in those parts, and uh, so he had an amazing range, and uh, even, but, you know, even in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Capra tapped into his, his anger and his toughness, um, and um, that character 
Along those lines, I think it really resonated with him to, you know, embrace the idea of giving people pleasure. And uh, yeah. if I recall, Lionel Barrymore talked to him about that, too. And, you oh, know. that's right. Yeah, he said, yeah, we, we give people a good time, and that's really important in this world. And Stuart really believed that, and he, he loved his public, and he was very uh, very nice to his fans and, and um, very grateful. I thought when he did his speech at, at our AFI Awards, he thanked the public, which I hadn't heard very many people do in, in those kind of speeches, and I thought that was very gracious. That speech, by the way, was written by Hal Cantor, who is a very good Hollywood comedy writer who uh, worked with Stewart on his TV series, and uh, Stewart very cleverly would hire Hal Cantor to write his public speeches. Um, I mean, I wrote the ones that he did for the Capra Tribute, but Cantor would, anytime Stewart had to give a speech in public about himself, Hal Cantor would write it for him. So he was careful to craft his image with the help of uh, an excellent writer. You know. And he poked fun at himself, too. He would make, like when he accepted our award, he would he poked fun of, at himself for slow talking and stumbling around and you know, that kind of stuff. That he, he enjoyed uh, making fun of himself for that, for his mannerisms. And that was endearing. And very uh, funny, you know. Yeah, I think people would be surprised to think about how calculated his public persona was. And I, I see someone like Steve Martin, who's he seems very obvious that he does the same thing. He goes on talk shows for years, and everything was really planned out. And uh, yeah. I, I those are those are two actors that I've greatly admired over time, uh, Steve Martin and Jimmy Stewart. And so I was actually yeah. watching. Um, the AFI tribute to Frank Capra that you wrote, and I, I noticed that Steve Martin was there. Uh, yeah, it's very funny. He had one of the funniest lines that he uh, ad lived, where he said, uh, uh, "You know, I know Frank Capra very well. He and I have been friends for more than eighty years." Yeah. You know, he was spoofing <laughs> those kind of shows. You know? Yes. Actually, one reviewer was offended by that and said it was ages, but I just thought it was really funny. Oh yeah, no. Capra, did, Capra got a big laugh out of that. Was that something that uh, Steve wrote, or did you write that? You no, know, he put that in there. Okay. Um, you know, what, what I did on those shows was I tried to work with the actors as much as possible to uh, make it sound like them. And sometimes, yeah. you know, people didn't realize it was written because uh, I think I did a pretty good job of uh, knowing how to write for different kinds of people and making it sound like them. But part of the way I did that was to go and talk to them at length beforehand. And, and uh, I would use some of their own words and then shape it into a speech. But uh, sometimes they would ad lib something. Um, I mean, when I started those shows, I asked George, our producer, I said, now, do the actors come in with their own speeches or do we write them? And he laughed and he said, Joe, these are actors. They need lines. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and uh, one time I was writing for Eva Marie Saint on, on the GISH program and uh, through a series of problems, you know, I, I wasn't able to write that show until the last two days. Uh, uh, you know, it's, 
Patrick, but you know, that's an example of actors really needing help. But a few people would come in with uh, speeches of their own, like Audrey Hepburn had a wonderful little speech she wrote about Fred Astaire, so that was great if they could do that. But quite often, um, you know, Betty Davis on our Capra show, uh, the producer said, to, you know, is there anything special you want to say? And she said, no, I have nothing to say. That She and Capra didn't get along, so... I wrote her a speech about how Capra was a great director. I had her explain that. And she said, perfect. But then <laughs> at the rehearsal, she said, uh, would you mind if I change a few uh, words here and there? And I said, geez, no, you're Betty Davis, my gosh. And uh, if she had changed it in any way that I didn't like, I would have worked with her on it as I did with people. And, um, but it came out great. Um, but most of the time they needed help, you know. Um, but I think Stewart was super smart, as you say, to craft his image. Steve Martin is a writer though. He's written screenplays and Stewart was not. Right. Uh, except for his poetry. He wrote funny poems but um, the fact that he um, carefully crafted it, it doesn't mean that it was phony at all because he was that kind of guy. I think he, he you know, he kind of maybe exaggerated for comic effect sometimes his, uh, his stammering and hemming and hawing mm. but um, he doesn't overdo it in most of his films. Uh that that was funny and, and um, you know he was a smart man and he knew that he knew his effects uh, I'm sure he did a lot of thinking you know preparation for roles so that he was a conscious actor in the sense of how, how am I going to do the scene how am I going to read the lines but maybe not in explaining it but I've, I've often found uh, in recent years especially I don't really need actors and directors to explain their films touched on a lot of things here. I wanted to go back to It's a Wonderful Life for a minute. Uh, and you've interviewed Donna Reed, um, and yeah. I think people were surprised to learn that Jimmy actually didn't want to work with her again, just maybe because, partly because of the failure of It's a Wonderful Life, and he just didn't really leave anything to chance. Uh, is I that... didn't know that he didn't want to work with her again. That's interesting. <laughs> well, uh, there are some interviews with her daughter uh, where she says that, and uh, so she was a little bit bitter toward it, but I, I think it was just the fact that the film didn't do well, and and he thought, well, that might have been, you know, maybe a chemistry thing was partially to blame, and so he just didn't take that risk. So who was bitter, the daughter or Donna Reed? Donna Reed. Oh, that's actually, yeah. Well, she was a super nice lady, one of the nicest people I met in show business, and very sharp lady too. Well, it's interesting. At one point, she proposed. Me, um, she said, You know, why don't we do a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life? And uh, she said, I'd love to be in it. And um, I, I went to Capra and I had some ideas for it, and, and uh, but he didn't like the idea of a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, he was probably right. It's kind of like Spielberg never wanted to do a sequel to E.T. But um, so at least Donna Reed wanted to work with him. But I, I suppose it was very. Um, uh, crushing that the film flopped. I mean, it it 
makes me wonder if he rubbed her the wrong way at some point. and then they wouldn't look away when he stopped talking. 
their persona within from role to role, and Wayne did that in a number of ways, but Stewart did it more dramatically. I mean, he had a wider range, and yet he always seemed like Jimmy Stewart. And uh, one mistake we made in the, on the Stewart tribute, I wrote a line where he said, uh, we said he was always an American. And then I realized later, hey, that's not true. In the Mortal Storm, he plays a German, and in the shop around the corner, he's a Hungarian. Mm-hmm. But he seems kind of like an American. Those were the days when Hollywood actors would um, play any nationality without an accent, and we would just suspend disbelief and go along with that. But um, he seems like an all-American figure, doesn't he? I mean, he's got all the qualities that we idealize. Um, but he's Jimmy Stewart, whether he's in Hungary or Germany or Washington or wherever, or the Wild West or wherever. Or a Paris sewer worker in Seventh yeah. Heaven? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right, in uh, Seventh Heaven. Yeah. Yeah, so there's three where he's not an American. But his range is extraordinary. I mean, the guy he plays in Vertigo is one of the most complex characters in film history. And uh, Rear Window, he's uh, quite disturbed. And Rope is, is kind of a stretch for him playing a professor who's into Nietzschean philosophy. And some mm-hmm. people think, gee, you know, could we believe that? But I, I believe that guy. I mean, he's he seems like a intellectual who's kind of cut off from uh, questions of morality and then he regrets it when his pupils go out and kill somebody. Yeah. And I find that a, a good performance. I was wondering about Vertigo and how tied to that movie you are being in San Francisco. Yeah. I but, also wrote the uh, the documentary Obsessed with Vertigo, a New Life for Hitchcock's Masterpiece, which is on the DVD and Blu-ray oh, and yes, Vertigo. Oh, so I got to, we didn't have, uh, well, Jimmy Stewart had died before then, unfortunately, and uh, I had kind of said, well, we should find some interviews with him and have his voice at least, but the director didn't do that for some reason. But we did a good job, I think, of showing how the film was made, and then it's, it's also about the the um, restoration of the film. But, um, yeah, uh, when, you're, when you're in San Francisco, you think of Vertigo all the time, when you see the Coit Tower that you can see in the film, and other locations and um, there, there are Vertigo tours that people give it's such a popular film and our director Harrison Engel told me he, he, he thinks he did the first Vertigo tour when he was a kid when the film came out in 1958 he said he liked it so much he, he went to San Francisco and looked up all the locations which I was impressed with you've met a lot of people who stands out to you as someone that you would you know you'd say you really enjoyed spending time with well, that, that's an interesting question. Yeah, um, Richard Lester was one, the director. Uh, I did a book called Two Cheers for Hollywood, which is my collection of interviews and articles. And I have an interview with Richard Lester, who directed Hard Day's Night, and he was just wonderful to talk to, and I really enjoyed that. Um, Lillian Gish was a, a delight to talk to. Uh, I spent time with her over the years. Uh, not an awful lot, but spent a lot of time with Howard Hawks, who was very congenial and very smart. Um, he was a kind of guarded guy emotionally, too, so you didn't get close to him on a kind of friendly, hanging out level. Um, Orson Welles, I spent a lot of time, you know, over the last 15 years of his life. I'm in the film The Other Side of the Wind, which finally came 
I read that your first week in Hollywood, you met John Ford, Orson Welles. You're yeah, like, Jean Renoir, my three favorite directors. Yeah, that's and I also met Peter Bogdanovich, who was at the time a young filmmaker who had made Targets, which I really admired. And I was emulating him because he was interviewing these old directors, and so I, I wanted to look him up. So I went to the Larry Edmonds bookshop, and I talked to the nice guy who was the proprietor, and he gave me Peter's phone number. And I called him, and and he said, I'm on the other line with Orson, could you hold on? And I was mm. stunned because I was writing a book on Wells, but I had no idea he was back in the United States. He was always kind of off in Europe, and you didn't know how to find him. And then he said, Wells would like to talk to you. So um, I called him the next day, and he invited me to be on the other side of the wind, which was a shock because I never acted. But um, he was looking for a young, sort of nerdy film buff, uh, film historian character to run around and ask the old director played by John Huston sort, sort of silly pretentious questions and I met Peter in the interim and he thought I was very funny and perfect for the part and so they put me in that so by the end of the week I was in this Wells film but I met Ford and Renoir and uh, uh, Wells and I actually I had called Hitchcock too and, and Hitchcock uh, left a message at my hotel saying He'd be happy to see me, and the hotel didn't give me the message in time. So. But I thought I thought every week in Hollywood would be like this. I didn't realize this was the, the pinnacle. This was the greatest week <laughs> I would ever have. That's pretty unbelievable. You did actually yeah. meet Hitchcock later on. You were on the set of Family Plot, correct? Yeah, I was fortunate. Uh, being on Variety was a terrific job for me because, um, you know, I, I, back in Wisconsin, I had sort of a dim idea of how films were actually made. And uh, I, I interviewed a few filmmakers in the Midwest, but... When I came to Hollywood, I, I got on the sets of films through Variety, and um, it's not the same way anymore. They're much more guarded about letting journalists on the sets and even talking to people. But I was able to go on the sets of just about any film I wanted and uh, uh, talk to anybody I wanted. You know, I get them on the phone and then go over and see them, and it was just a dream come true. And so I spent two days watching Hitchcock shoot Family Plot, which was fascinating because it was a lot different from people thought he you know drew every shot ahead of time or had somebody draw them and and was very rigid but he wasn't at all um turned out he did that for his action sequences and special effects sequences but the dialogue sequences he would direct like any other director he would you know kind of have let the actors do the scene and watch them and uh film it you know figure out how to film it and so it's fascinating to watch him do that and then making up shots as he went along and my friend Bill Crone did a whole book on, uh, based on that called Hitchcock at Work. He was inspired by my experience there. And um, I saw, uh, well, as I said, I was on the set of The Shooters for two days. That was one of my big thrills with watching Don Siegel direct Wayne and Stewart and, and many other films. Some, some films not so great, but you know, it was really interesting just watching the whole process. And I learned an awful lot from that. That's interesting you were on the, the last film that John Wayne made. What are your memories of that shoot? Well, it was great watching the two guys together because they were so um, respectful and professional, of course. And, uh, you know, I kind of watched as they would sort of work out physical details. A lot of acting in films is just, you know, how do you make this move? How do you pass? Like, Wayne had a pillow that he used because he had cancer in the film. And so they were kind of fiddling with Adam trying to pass it back and forth and then 
talk to him then and he wouldn't really communicate and I thought well he's in his own world he doesn't want to you know um, talk while he's working but I, I realized later too he had a serious hearing problem and he said later that was one of his reasons he didn't act a lot in later years he, you know he'd have trouble on the set sets are noisy and he found it uncomfortable communicating you know because of the hearing issue he would wear hearing aids and stuff and I think that was why he was sitting there so quietly but he was a kind of introverted man in, a, in an interesting way too right, I so think I, I found that a real difference you know and so I didn't get to interview him on that set I interviewed Wayne went into his trailer with him it was a motorhome that he had parked uh, outside the set and then I interviewed crew members and Siegel and Siegel was telling me how Wayne was trying to tell him how to direct the film and he said uh, he eats directors for breakfast but when he eats, tries to eat me he'll get indigestion I remember <laughs> to uh, Orson Welles so this film The Other Side of the Wind just came out on Netflix within the past couple of weeks what do you think of the results? Thank you. 
everybody turned it down. It's also very, uh, you know, it's an experimental offbeat film, very unusual structure, has two storylines going on at once, there's a film within the film, and very rapid cutting, and um, uh, everybody turned it down, Spielberg, Lucas, Clint Eastwood, Oliver Stone, you name them, various companies, and uh, Showtime was interested. They, they actually made us an offer in 1998 for $3 million to finish it, <clears throat> and I wanted Peter Bogdanovich to be the uh, guy who did the technical work on finishing the film, and I was going to be a producer. And as soon as we made the deal, Peter and Oya Kodar, who was Wells' uh, companion and collaborator on the film, uh, she owned his share of the rights. They both fired me from the project. They felt they didn't need me, and then the project soon collapsed. I don't know, I felt if I had been on it, it would have come out a long time ago. But I just decided, even though it was unjust, I decided to back away and not cause any more trouble for the film. And frankly, now I feel I was very lucky to have been fired because I wouldn't have wanted to go through what the producers went through to get this film finished. Uh, years and years of negotiating with Oya and other parties and working out all the legal details, and then the post-production was extremely difficult and uh, there's a good documentary on Netflix called The Final Cut for Orson 40 Years in the Making which shows how they finished it and they make the point in there that they might not have been able to finish this film with the technology that existed um, as little as you know five or ten years back so because of uh, computers and digital editing and all kinds of things they could do amazing feats of um, reconstruction that are very hard to would have been hard to do in an analog world I think we could have done it but um, it would have taken uh, longer it would have been really hard in some ways but so I, I'm just as happy that I was not involved directly but then I was brought in as a consultant when they started uh, uh, Philip and uh, a producer named uh, Jens Kostner Call who's a German producer were both 
rejected by critics and audiences at the beginning, and now it's considered a great film. So I expected that would happen with this film, and uh, it's gotten some wonderful reviews and then some dismissive reviews. Most of them are, are respectful to Wells and their praising of the post-production team. But I, a lot of the reviews, um, I think, don't engage with the themes of the film, especially the sexual themes, which are complex. And I, they talk about sort of side issues or, um, you know, kind of the style of the film, but not as much about the content. So I wrote a long piece for Sight and Sound, the British film magazine that came out in the November issue. It came out around early October, actually, and uh, I tried to deal with the history of the film and then analyze you know, what, what this film is about and how it carries it out in an unusual way. And I'm, I was happy with that. And I, I think it sort of influenced some of the later reviews. That it, the first reviews in mainstream publications I didn't think were as interesting as some of the ones that are coming out now. Um, in film magazines and blogs and even student newspaper reviews, a lot of very, very interesting uh, comments on the film. So I'm finding it fascinating. You know, I'm learning things about the film that I didn't know after all these years. That's what I like to find from a reviewer, not so much whether I agree with him or, or, or not, but do I learn something from it? So I'm learning learning things from, from the reviews and from the audience. What was it like to be on call for this film for so many years, and how did that work? Well, um, you know, the first day we did a lot of shooting, and some of the footage is in the film, but Peter Bogdanovich and I were playing two critics, and then later... He became famous as a director with The Last Picture Show, which he was about to shoot at that time. And um, Wells recast him as this hotshot young director um, who has a really big part in the film, and he's kind of an acolyte but friendly rival to the Houston character, and uh, he betrays the Houston character. And Wells' films are usually about betrayal. And so Peter is terrific in the film, but they recast his early part with a fellow named Howard Grossman, so we did some reshooting of that. So the, the opening scenes where we're driving to the party with John Houston were a composite of 1970 and 71 footage, and then Houston was filmed later because he wasn't there at all when we were shooting. And uh, well shot around Houston for three years. Uh, and I said, who are you going to cast in this film? He said, well, it's either John Houston or Peter O'Toole doing his imitation of John Houston. <laughs> Now, later, I asked Peter O'Toole about that, and he roared with laughter. He had never heard that before, but he said he was friendly with Wells, and he immediately did a great John Houston impression. But uh, Houston is perfect in the role. He's so weathered and jaded and cynical and has a lot of stature. You really believe he's a great director because he was in real life. And uh, he's a very enigmatic character who's guarded in his emotions, but in the course of the film, he kind of breaks down and reveals a lot of his inner torment and insecurities and, and prejudices. And Wells did that very carefully and craftily because Houston told me, he said, acting was a lark. He called it a lark. And Wells wanted to break him down beyond that easy style that Houston had developed. And I think Houston started his career, he wanted to be a serious actor in the 30s. He played Abraham Lincoln on the stage and all that, and then he gravitated to writing maybe because he thought he wasn't a great actor or he had problems trying to rival his father, Walter Houston, who was a great actor. And um, So he had a, he had ambitions as an actor once, and Wells was kind of pushing him back in that direction. 
a couple of final questions what films do you never tire of
All right, final question. What is Jimmy Stewart's legacy? Well, he's got a great legacy, doesn't he? I mean, he, he made so many classics. Um, that's one way you measure a legacy. Like, I, I proposed Ingrid Bergman for um, the AFI Life Achievement Award, and they didn't go for her, which I thought was very short-sighted. And they, they said, has she made that many good films? <laughs> I said, well, she's made probably at least seven of the greatest films ever made. And so with Stewart, you could say that. I mean, there's no... I mean, he's so popular, you know, that's one reason he was chosen, but he's also highly respected as an actor by directors and and by critics who are often, you know, um, very captious with Hollywood stars, but Stewart has always commanded respect. And you go through his list of films, so many um, great films of different types. Um, I mean, also, for example, he made so many Westerns, which we pointed out on the show. I had Gene Kelly say that, and I said, I, I forget how many Westerns he's made. It's like 17 or 20 or something. And then I, I had Gene so. Kelly say, and he's from Princeton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's completely convincing as a Western character. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is one of the greatest films ever made. And the Anthony Mann Westerns and um, Dustry Rides Again, which is a very good comic Western. Um, and then the, the Frank Capra films are magnificent, the Lubitsch film. Uh, but he was good in anything, too. I mean, he's he's one of those actors who's never really bad. Sometimes he was put in vehicles that were worthy of him. Um, and in later years, I was somewhat disappointed he didn't do more serious films, but um, he was, you know, I guess it's partly a combination of older actors not getting offered a lot of great roles. And then he was turning parts down. I remember uh, I was told that in the film Hearts of the West, which is a good film about Hollywood, it's a comedy about a young uh, screenwriter coming to Hollywood in the 30s, played by Jeff Bridges, and he becomes friends with an old uh, cowboy actor, and they, they offered the role to Stewart who turned it down, and, and then um, Andy Griffith played it, and he was terrific, but it's a shame Stewart didn't do that, but he did a film Fool's Parade late in his career, which was awfully good. He played a one-eyed bank robber, which is unusual kind of casting and he had a you know this dark gnarly side to him and uh, that's a good film but hardly anybody saw that you know and that was probably disappointing for him and um but uh he kind of kind of faded out in terms of film acting after a while but he had done so much over the years anatomy of a murder is a fantastic film uh, uh you know if you just go through the list harvey he's, he's wonderful in that of course uh uh, you know, he's just likable and uh, lovable and, and yet very real and very disturbing in a lot of ways, like when he breaks down in Wonderful Life and screams at his family and smashes this town that he was wanting to build, you know, this model of this town. I mean, it's very, very upsetting. It's really a film about suicide. As, as one critic wrote, if you don't believe in angels, it's a film about a man committing suicide. Um so it's a very, very dark film, which people recognize now. They didn't probably at the time. Um, but it has that heartwarming, wonderful ending, which is a departure from reality. And I, I was a little, I'm a little disappointed in a way because I like, you know, Mr. Smith is uh, a more real film, although even there the ending is, is kind of phony that the senator bursts in and confesses Capra had these sort of forced happy endings. So uh, the films are not that different in a way, but Capra really plumbed some of the depths and the highs and lows of Jimmy Stewart, but 
Joseph McBride, thank you very much for taking time to speak with me. Well, it's really delightful, and I love talking about Stuart, uh, his work I admire so much, and uh, he asked great questions, and thank you so much. Thank you to Professor Joseph McBride, and a big thanks to Megan Kalsa, one of our Jimmy Stewart Museum volunteers, for arranging this interview. If you listen to us on iTunes, please leave us a review. It will help raise the profile of the podcast and spread the word to other fans. Also, feel free to drop me a note at podcast at jimmy.org. Most of all, I hope you'll plan to visit the Jimmy Stewart Museum in Jimmy's hometown of Indiana, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit jimmy.org. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Tim Vanderberg, and we'll be back again soon.